Welcome to Orangi Cybersecurity's Ask a CISO podcast. Come with us as we take a deep dive behind the scenes with the world's top cybersecurity leaders to get insights into security issues you care about. Before we take off, please help us grow by taking just a few seconds to like and subscribe to the podcast on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. And leave us a review letting us know what you think of the podcast and how we can improve. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ask a CISO podcast brought to you by Harangue Cybersecurity. My name is Jeremy Snyder. I'm the founder and CEO of Firetail.io. We are an API security company. I'm thrilled to be today's guest host, and I'm also thrilled today to be joined by Diana Kelly. Diana Kelly is probably a name that a lot of our audience will be familiar with. She is the CSO2, meaning both the chief strategy officer and the chief security officer and co-founder of Cyberize. She also serves on the board of Cyber Future Foundation, W-I-C-Y-S, WISIS, maybe WISIS. I'll let her clarify pronunciation on that the Executive Women's Forum. Diana has been in the cybersecurity field for a number of years and has worked at companies like Microsoft, IBM Security, Burton Group, KPMG. She's also the chief VCSO at Salt Cybersecurity. She serves on a number of boards, advisory boards for both organizations, universities, learning institutions. Way too many to list on today's episode if we don't want to take the entire time just talking about Diana's past. But one thing that I think is really important to know is that she's a very sought-after keynote speaker in the field of cybersecurity. She hosts a series on Bright Talk called The Security Balancing Act. She's co-authored a number of books, such as Practical Cybersecurity Architecture, which I believe we will maybe be doing a giveaway for and I think has a second edition coming up. We'll ask Diana a little bit more about that as we get into the conversation. But Diana, it is absolutely a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Jeremy. It's great to be here. And yeah, it's interesting. So WICYS is Women in Cybersecurity. It was founded by Dr. Amberie Shiraj to promote the recruitment, retention, and advancement of women in cybersecurity. But it is a little bit confusing about how to say it. So the executive director of WeSys, Lindo, came up with this great way to remember it, which is WeSys is We Sisters. Stands together. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Well, it's certainly an organization with, I believe, a truly noble cause. And it's funny, as somebody building a cybersecurity company, I've really tried and tried to bring as much diversity to the table as possible. In fact, as an organization, you know, we're 12 people. And to be honest, we've had struggles recruiting women. We've not found a lot of women applicants for a lot of our positions. Finally, we actually got some women into the organization and we're currently hiring as well. And it looks like we've got a number of very strong women candidates there that we'll be talking with. The diversity we ended up with originally as an organization, I'm a huge proponent of diversity in terms of thinking and bringing together different perspectives on problem solving. Originally, our kind of claim to fame was that in our first 10 employees, we had no two of the same passport. And I do think that's served us well, but certainly more room for improvement on that side. Well, Diana, <laughs> that would really limit the size of the company if everybody had to be from yeah. country. <laughs> we'd max out at 200 or something, right? And even that we'd really struggle, I'm sure. One of the things that's really going on in kind of the broader, let's say, macro tech landscape right now, as I'm sure all of us who have been on LinkedIn in the last couple of weeks have seen, is this huge rise in AI and AI chatbots. And I'm really curious to get your perspective as somebody who's been in the space for a long, long time. Is this a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it 
just a natural evolution that we need to wrap our heads around how we address it from a cybersecurity perspective and risk analysis and all that good stuff. What's been your first reactions to all of this chat stuff that we've seen? So I first have to preface with, in case anybody doesn't know, I am neurodiverse and my neurodiversity is dyslexia, which very rarely comes up, but every now and then there's a word or an acronym that for some reason it's really hard for me. And chat GPT is one of them. So when I start speaking quickly, for some reason, I will transpose the T and the P. So just so everybody knows, if you hear me say chat GTP, it is not that I don't know what it actually is. It's just that that's weird little. And it's funny because most of the time my dyslexia is, I mean, for years, people didn't even know Yeah, after yeah. I got out of school, yeah. right? But yeah, it's it's coming back with that one. So let me preface that. Gotcha. But what do we, okay. it, boy, it, it really has. And thanks to chat GPT, it does seem to be that we went from a lot of, of it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, or it's here, but it's my, it's, I can't tell you how my, my AI or ML works because it's magical and it's going to make you very secure. So just buy my magic product and it'll fix everything. You know, now it's like, it's in front of people are like, I don't know what it is. Um, now it's very real. Yeah. It's, it's right here in front of us. We can interact with it. So, and you, these CEOs are apparently writing emails with it. We've got people writing, you know, like whole articles that that's some of the journalists have tried writing articles. So it, yeah, it's everywhere. And I'm actually really glad that we've got it out into the mainstream because now people can start interacting with it. It felt very black box, very scary, back to that sort of magical fairy dust. I, A lot of times a company would say, I, you know, I'd be sitting in a meeting or sitting in a presentation and hear a company say, you know, our detection and response is going to stop everybody in their tracks because it's so brilliant with the ML. And then, well, how does the ML work? Ah, if I told you, I'd have to kill you kind of stuff. So it just felt really, and you'd say, well, there, it's a black box and the waiting is in the black box. And people would be like, this is feeling very confusing. Now that people can just chat with it, it, then it's okay. It feels, I think, much more realistic. But as we're chatting with it, now people can also see that they're not always perfect. If you go to, yep. to chat GTP right now and you ask what books in security Diana Kelly wrote, we'll tell you books. I've had it give me very different things. I've had about seven different books. One book that I apparently wrote was Secrets and Lives, which is Bruce Schneider's book. So there's there are a couple other books that I was like, I wish I'd written that book. But not once has it actually said either of the books that I did, in fact, co-author oh, interesting. or the book that I contributed a chapter to. None of those have shown up in any of the responses. And that's really, that's powerful if we're going to ask a search engine, you know, in this case is where a lot of people are using the search engine to give us an answer. And instead of what we're used to with the search engine, a series of links that we then have to decide, do I trust this source? Do I not trust this yeah. source? Is it, have I found in context to this answer and it feels, is there truthiness? No. Is it, does it feel like this is, this is a good resource and I'm getting an accurate answer? Instead, it's just saying, here's an answer. And we as human beings, when we get that answer, especially when it's confident, because it's really confident, you know, it's like, yeah. it's like, I really know that what I'm talking about, yeah. it's hard for us to question. I mean, I looked at that and for a second. I'm like, did I? No, I did not write this book. But you, know, you have this weird moment. And that's what I've been talking about this for many, many years. AI and ML, this is the future. We have created systems that create so much data that the only way to get through it is with other systems, is with AI and ML. So this is this is the future. 
And it's good. I mean, like even search engines, right? That we have so much data now to sift through. It's much easier rather than having to come up with an expression in the right way and sift to get it to interact with us. But we have to be careful about how we use it, how we deploy it, how resilient it is, and then also how we respond and the accuracy. So Jeremy, if I give you two 10-digit numbers and asked you to multiply them, would you do that in your head or would you probably use calculus? Unless one of them is like a string of zeros, it's like one digit followed by nine zeros, I'm going to go to a calculator. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Yeah. And, and then after the calculator gave you the answer, would you go, I don't know if this is accurate. I think I'm just going to go and re- I'm going to check the math. Or would you go, thank you, that's the answer, and then? Well, it depends actually on how accurate or how precise I need that response to be. If it's like a life or death or it's like a major financial decision, I'm probably going to run that calculation a few more times, maybe drop it into a spreadsheet, you know, and run a calculation there or something. But if it's critical, I'm going to check the math most likely. Okay. All right. Good. Most people, you know, I agree if it's life and death. Most of us, if somebody says multiply two tangent numbers, you go to your trusted calculator or whatever number comes up, unless it looks really weird. Weird. Yeah. Here's the answer. Uh, and that's my concern with the AI and ML. Yeah. Is that yeah, if if you go to it and and you trust it and it's smart and you say what books did somebody write and it says very authoritatively these are the books and interestingly it will actually describe. I mean, I was just I'm working on a talk on this. I'm updating a talk that I have, so I actually took a screenshot. And so one of the things that it said that I had written was zero trust networks building secure systems and untrusted networks. I did not write that. But then it gave extra information. It says, in this book, Diana Kelly provides a detailed explanation of zero trust networking principles and how to implement them to achieve maximum security. So it doesn't just sound like it was kind of guessing. It's giving you like this flavor and color around. You wrote that, Diana. What are you not remembering, right? Right, right. And I did not, again, I did not write that. So that's, that's, I'm glad that we've got more people interacting with it. I think even seeing things like, did you see the, all the journalists playing with the preview version of yeah. the chat at the the re the the next gen right in in Bing. Yeah, I did. Yeah, and that one I think is it's interesting in that also it's coming up with not always accurate answers. And and let me just level set. Google Bard came up with an inaccurate answer in and that was used in an ad, and they actually lost some money. So I mean, this is not. It's I, I'm not trying to call out. Open AI, or this is sure. just something we need to look at, think about in AI and ML. Yeah. But the thing with what happened with Big was really interesting was that they chose to add sentience to the system. Sentience in that bot was responding with things like, I laughed, I thought that was funny, which is that's an interesting choice because these systems don't have sentience. You have to program in the semblance of sentience. The other right. thing that, that sort of was like this weird, sort of like sideways of sentience in there was there, the the chats were, at least the ones I was reading from the journalists that had posted their full, they were adding emoticons at the end of every paragraph, which is also an implication of sentience. I mean, if I, yep. you know, if I put a ha-ha, you know, a laughing, whatever we're supposed to use for laughing now, you know, I, some toy, I'm supposed to use a skull, but I'm an old, so I guess I'm not as like, but <laughs> I'm still but whatever. Well. Yeah. Whatever we're using for that, you have to sort of, there's a sentence, there's an awareness of, oh, that was funny. So I'm going to put the haha, I'm laughing emoticon at the end of it. So I thought that was an interesting choice too. 
but again, it's getting this out into you know, more people are using it and feeling more like, oh, I can interact with this and not just this is some scary, really deeply mathematical, technical black box that I have no view into. It's really interesting because that, that point about black box is one of those things that, you know, we as security practitioners for a long time, we're always kind of cautious of, right? Like anytime you don't know what a system is doing underneath the cover, so to speak, it's like a little bit scary. And you look at something like sentience. And to me, I try to think about like, because I noticed the same as what you mentioned. And certainly when you were talking through that, I was trying to think, you know, why would you make that choice? And it seemed yeah. to me that the reason you would make that choice is to establish more human trust in the responses that the system is giving you. It's one thing for a computer to give you facts. That's what we're used to computers doing, right? Yeah. And th things like search engines, we're very trained on how we use search engines because it's yeah. been that way for 20 some years. It gives us these lists of things and then we make our human decisions to parse and analyze and then decide what to trust. But if I ask a person the question, somebody that I trust, somebody that I know and trust the question, I don't just get facts. I get facts and then I get human interaction often with things like a little emotional input or, you know, an emoticon in a text message thread or something like that, that probably increases my level of trust. So I wonder if, you know, maybe that's why that choice was made. But one of the things that occurred to me, and I'm curious to get your take on this, in cybersecurity, you raised the point that we create so much data that we now need systems to manage data because that's the only way we can really parse through the volumes, the huge volumes of data that we're creating, right? But what we're seeing with like ChatGPT and BARD and these other systems is we're seeing the creation of text, not so much like, let's say, the extraction of fact from text or the analysis of text. So if I think about a lot of cybersecurity use cases, one of the ones that I know is going to be familiar to you and most of our audience is we've got our SOC analysts who are dying under volumes of data every day. And what do they do? They want to apply data algorithms on top of the data coming in so they can filter out signal from noise, right? So we can get rid of the 97% plus false positives that get raised to our SOC analysts that they waste countless hours every week. And by the way, you want to talk about job dissatisfaction, geez, I cannot imagine going to work nowadays as a SOC analyst. And so I wonder, like, what's your view on the utility of these systems more from the potential kind of data analysis perspective than, than on the data creation perspective? And wouldn't that actually be more useful for us in cyber? Yeah, I completely agree with that. The non-chatty with every, chat alone with everybody and just really let's look at, at security and how we can help the cyber analysts and the, the folks in the soft to do their job better. It's actually, I, I have to admit, I don't know what happened to this product, but when I, and it may still be out there, it may be have a different name, but when I was at IBM, we were training Watson for cybersecurity and it was to address exactly that. And then we had like the code name Haven because we had put, not we, but one really super smart engineer at IBM said, Hey, I can make this talk basically. <laughs> so it's like, it was able to, you know, there was a parser on the front end so you could talk at it. So instead of uh, typing in your query, but on the back end, it was the same thing. It was, it was using the AI to be able to parse not data around cybersecurity much more quickly, whether it was if someone said, Hey, I'm seeing this IOA, just do you know what it might be? And, you know, being able to look sort of in general about is that IOA reported anywhere else and what does it mean? But also you could make it then bring it into the company. And we were talking about things like 
giving it access. And again, I don't know where it finally landed, this product, because I left IBM sure. years ago. But it was, you know, we were talking about, could you bring in information that the SIM has, the signal that you get from all of your different security, your workloads, all your cloud instances, bring in this critical signal and then use the AI to be able to look at that. And if you say, I have an indicator of attack or an indicator, or could you look for an indicator of compromise, it would then work with your existing security tool to kind of, to exactly as you're talking about, Jeremy, to give you better analysis faster than what a human could do. And I think in, in a very you know narrow use case like that, that's where I think you start to get some real power. You also get power from using these tools to do things that it would take too much time for a human to do. Yeah. So things like using, pro right, because probability is something that ML is really good at, figuring probabilities. Yeah. So going down different attack paths, what's the probability that this attack path will be exploited? What if I just go down infinite number, you know, all the attack paths I can find in a complicated network? and come back with the likelihood that an attacker might find that. That's another way that I think you look at AI and ML and there's a huge amount of benefit that could be there. And it is really yeah. helping the human being to do their job better, not replacing yeah. the human being, just giving them the data that they need to do their job better. What you just described really, I think it would be a fantastic use case. Cause I know from, again, from talking to SOC analysts, from talking to IR teams, they spend so much time up front in any kind of incident response scenario. A, get me all the forensics data. B, then I kind of have to go through hypothesis after hypothesis. What do I, as the analyst, think was the most likely attack path? And so based on that, I'm going to go look at this log, then this log, then this log, then this log to try to reconstruct the event. And if I find nothing through that one, then I go to plan B, plan C, plan D, etc. And so to your point, if you can accelerate a human's interactions and lead them to the most likely path quicker, I think you get faster response times, you get faster resolution, you get, potentially you can cut people out of your, you know, if some, if a bad actor has been planted on your network through some breach or compromise, you figure out where quicker and maybe have a remediate and get them out of your network faster. So that, that makes a ton of sense. I'm curious, you know, aside from kind of, let's say, mapping attack path or from kind of filtering noise, and putting, let's say, IBM Watson work aside for a second, have you spent a lot of time thinking about other areas of cybersecurity or cybersecurity practices where AI would have a, a big impact from your view? So in the positive, it's going to be helping analysts and helping managers, you know, people who are in charge of tracking and hunting attacks. I think that's going to be the big win for security. I worry looking at the other side, which is the failure modes or the risks as we start to use AI and ML outside of security. So inside security, right, we obviously has to be reliable and resilient. But outside of security is when I start really getting concerned about the misuse cases. And the so things like deep fakes or... No, not so much deep fakes. I mean, they're getting better. They're, I still think that you can, most of the time, there are little, you know, you can tell. And there's still metadata about was this really the real thing. Their whole universities have whole labs where they actually go back and look at the provenance of video clips and things. So I'm not saying it's a solved one, but I, no, more than deep fake, I just, two big things. One is these systems, ML and AI, they need data. They need a lot of data to reason over to learn. How do you learn? You learn through data. You learn on the corpus of knowledge. 
and the data that we're giving them to train on, if we're looking out at like basically the vast internet, then the big problem is you should have to say, if I want to train this system on X, I need to find all the right resources that I want it to consume on X, right? Because if you just give it the whole internet, there's a whole lot of disinformation, misinformation, people who maybe are really unclear on the concept, right? So you want your tool to learn from really reliable sources. But those reliable sources, let's say if I'm trying to do them, one thing that the AI was used for was, you know, can we do a moonshot and figure out what the trailing indicator for cancer is, for example. So how are you going to get that information? That's a whole lot of healthcare data. Yeah. And and as we put that healthcare data into the system, was it properly anonymized? And has the system been protected properly, right? The API to the system, right? Your area, yep. right? It, you query that. And if it wasn't protected properly, you can actually do some inversion out of the model and sometimes find data that was thought to be secret yep. and actually be queried or at least put together by an attacker. They can at least recreate it, even if they can't fully extract it. So you know, to get enough data out that they can then recreate a, a fuller picture. So I worry about that with security. I worry about like our privacy, our data, how's it being used. And then the other thing that I had brought up earlier, which is that if these systems are not accurate and they're starting to give out the wrong information, again, going back to another healthcare one, and right now AI and ML being used to do things like read radiographs because human beings are pretty good at reading radiographs, but sometimes the thinking is if we can get a system to do it with higher accuracy, then that's a great way to assist human beings. But if we start trusting the radiograph telling us that's cancerous or that's not cancerous, that lesion, and the human starts going, I better not double check this. I think the system already said that, that we could have somebody who gets an all clear on cancer that doesn't, that, you know, is actually sick or vice versa. So when I think about security, and then you start thinking about what about national security and how we're using yeah. systems to, you know, drones to help identify targets and which targets should be, right, and level it up so that security in cyber and someone in a SOC, AI and ML, as we start ex looking at it used throughout the entire world for many different use cases and applications that then the security becomes about the security of us, about our health, yeah. about our data, about our nation states. One of the things you mentioned there really brought something to mind for me, which is in the point of data, as you said, you know, these systems, they need data to train on, right? And so one of the things I've wondered about over the years is how many organizations really take, let's say, data provenance seriously. It's not an area that I've seen a lot of emphasis or focus on in my 25-ish years in technology. But I wonder about, you know, hey, if I'm going to be building an ML model off of these data sets, is there a danger that somewhere upstream, the data that I'm getting to put into this model either throws my model off or deliberately manipulates my model to steer it one direction or the other? And then to your point, does that have implications for healthcare, for national security, for financial services, for whatever the use case is, for, let's say, distracting my SOC team from a real IOA or IOC? You know, you do wonder about things like that. And there, there's a lot of potential danger in that. We've heard a lot recently about supply chain security in terms of things like, you know, CICD and building software. But what about building the data sets for these models? What have you heard along these lines or what would you counsel people on if they're thinking about this for their own companies or their own organizations? So I've heard this discussion among data scientists and some security 
I have not heard it go into mainstream security. So by that, I mean, what's the average CEO or CIO that I'm talking to? They're still, they're very focused on phishing and maybe they'll get to business email compromise part of ransomware. Right. So what you're talking about, yes, I've heard it discussed, but I don't think it's hit the mainstream discussions yet, but it's so critical because it's the data. It's either the data it was trained on could be skewed or biased in a certain way that's going to throw off the output. If it's still in learning mode when you deploy it, that what people feed into the data, my example, like the infamous one, because it's so public, was back in the day when Microsoft had Tay, the, the, the natural language processing bot that within 24 hours, right, it was learning and it was, it, people, the data that it was given was horribly racist and terrible. And so, you know, you had to stop the the test early within 24 hours. Um, but so there, there's that, right. So within a day or something, right. Yeah. It was less than 24 hours. Yeah. (laughs) Which just, I mean, you know, Twitter, right. Twitter was like, yeah. But then the, the other thing is like the model itself could be, so there's a supply chain in the models themselves. There are model zoos where, Someone can create a great model and say, I did this model and this is what it's it's tuned to look at or it's tuned to process this this you know, this kind of data and gives you good, you know, maybe it'll help you to, to threat hunt in your in your multi-cloud environment, or maybe it's gonna help you figure out if something's cancerous. But whatever that model is and you reuse it from a model zoo, if that's been corrupt, because that's another thing is that people are starting to realize attackers have realized that if people are going into model zoos and pulling out models and using them, that if they can corrupt that model, hide something, put some turgid horse in the model, and it still appears to work, that it's quite possible they either have a backdoor to it, they could change the output later, or possibly even the output just starts to kind of skew. And all models tend to, in general, models skew towards bias. So you have to kind of go through and recalibrate anyway. So this is really, yeah, these are some really, I, I haven't heard a whole lot of mainstream conversation but these are really important conversations to have. And again, that's why I sort of was, yay, but also, uh, you know, when I saw that now the chat hots are being interacted with by CEOs, because at least this is going to become a more, once they get over the, ooh, it can read an email for me, we can start having that better conversation. Exactly what you're talking about. There is going to be a supply chain. There is a supply chain for data already and for AI ML models, and it's just going to be more and more important to focus on the security of that and who knows when we're doing our SOC 2s that's probably going to be an answer in the future about yeah, getting wonder, our like I've been watching the evolution of SOC 2 as organizations kind of yeah you know, I've spent the last 10 plus years working primarily on cloud related security items and I've noticed that what's in scope for SOC 2 has really changed over the last few years and you know as recently as five six years ago cloud environments were generally not in scope now we see like, you know, cloud vulnerabilities being assessed, you know, as part of a SOC 2. We see cloud-based specific, cloud-specific pen testing being a new practice that's coming in. I've actually, for the first time, just recently saw APIs called out in a SOC 2 pen test. And I was like, well, great for us in the sense that it's going to create some awareness and potentially help our business grow. That's fantastic. But you do wonder that, you know, these things are often kind of behind And I don't want us as a security industry to get behind on AI. So I'm kind of curious your view on one thing. You know, when we see these new black box kind of technologies coming, I think your reaction of like, yay, but also is probably one that a lot of people can kind of relate to. 
we do these annual security awareness training exercises with our teams, right? And we go through things like watch out for phishing emails, watch out for email scams, malware, blah, 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 right? Watch out for the fake email that claims to be your CEO who says he needs you to urgently transfer $10,000 to some vendor or some stuff like that, right? Are we going to need to implement similar training programs specifically for security organizations relative to AI tools? And let's say, you know, not accepting all AI results at face value if they can't attest to the security of the AI pipeline and the provenance of the data feeding into the model. Is this something we're going to need to think about? I think we're absolutely going to have to think about training our security teams to be ethical and cautious as they're using these tools, especially as we are figuring out, you know, like, how reliable is this? You know, is this giving me an accurate answer? Did it tell me somebody wrote a book that they didn't write at all? So I I think, yeah, I think you're right. There's going to have to be training on how to use that. I don't know if we'll have special security training for it, though. I'm just, I mean, now you got me down the SOC 2. We, you know, the SOC 2 rep, where, right, where the security training, everybody has to do it. So, you know, I had to do the same security training at CyberEyes that everybody else has to do. That's just the way that it is. So I don't know if we'll have like core security training for everybody on what AI and ML, but I think that we may, depending on how broadly these tools are used and how how trustworthy they are. Just like, I mean, at one point you know, it was like, well, do we have to really teach the CEO about what ransomware is? Well, yes, we do. <laughs> it turned out that, yeah, we did. So it'll be, it'll be interesting. But I think certainly for the security teams that getting a little bit smarter about how to use these tools and what they mean is going to be important. But you know, you said a really interesting thing, Jeremy, which is about APIs and API like awareness is just kind of getting into to a lot of the stock yeah. um assessments. And you know, I still so I, I grew up in, in the network space. You know, I'm a network guy. I, I pivoted and became an application person because I realized no matter what I did down at layer three, it was always nothing was gonna matter if this, everything up at layer seven was wide open. Especially once we got into web services and it was all port eighty or yeah. four thick. But I think that we still have a huge lag in application security awareness in security teams and even security executives. It's the harder, more complicated part of security. And APIs are squarely in there. And that gives me quite a lot of pause because API security, so glad they're, because <laughs> it, it is just really becoming the keys to our kingdom. And I don't think architecturally we've re, you know, if you, especially if you came, if you're like a sign of a dinosaur like me, it's all like, where's my, where's my segmentation? Where's my router going to do? Right. And now like, it's like that kind of stuff. Yeah. It still matters. We're still going to do segmentation, but what, how we're protecting the API and the access into the APIs is really critical. And as I look at the low code, no code transformation, which I, again, I, I'm a huge low code, no code fan. I've written workloads and solutions in you know, using those tools. I'm not a developer, but, you know, I could use those yeah. tools and do something pretty cool. Um, you know, we're also handing out, because invariably you get to give me your API key. And I've had other people, yeah, you know, I've had like marketing people who are also getting excited about low code, no code, you know, and they're like, what's an API key? What do I do? Oh, I just cut and paste this and I put it in. And it's like, that's a password. That's a static yeah. password. <laughs> that's really, that's very serious. So I think that yes we need security to go loop back do we need security to look and understand ai and ml yes but 
I'm not sure that that's going to happen before. Yet we also have to get more awareness on what's happening in application security and especially what's happening with APIs. So I kind of hope that we do that one. It, maybe we can do it both together, but I also realize that we're a little bit behind in applications. So that makes me think we might stay behind with the training and, and AI ML, unfortunately. Yeah, unfortunately, I mean, it feels like we're always a little bit behind because, you know, new threats emerge quicker than new defense systems, it often seems. But, but to your point about APIs, obviously, you're preaching to the choir. I firmly believe that this is a major threat to a lot of organizations. It's been really interesting, the journey that we've been on. Some of the data we've gathered shows that 83% of internet traffic is API traffic, not human wow. computer, but actual, you know, system to system. Yeah. And if you actually think about, let's say, like every time you order food delivery, the number of API calls that go into creating that transaction and delivering it, it's like 20 plus transactions across typically four parties. And so, you know, your home address, your credit card information, all of this stuff is being sent from company A to company B. To your point, by the way, I also grew up as a network engineer, right? And I spent all that time with Cisco IOS way back yes. when and serial cables and all this crap that I hope I, you know, like... The stuff of nightmares from 20 years ago that I hope to never see again. <laughs> and the thing of it is, once I started working for one of the major, the big three cloud vendors, it really like changed my perspective. Because guess what? Where is your layer three and your layer four? Right. And, you know, what kind of micro segmentation can you do in this massive multi-tenant cloud environment? Well, it turns out nowadays, VPC enablement and VPC segmentation is a real thing. But back in the days when I worked for one of them, it wasn't. You were just, you know, grabbing individual virtual machines out of this massive virtualized network and your yeah. layer three, layer four was kind of very minimal, the yeah. best. And so you had to shift a lot of the focus onto the application. And I tell you what really kind of changed my mindset of, aside from that experience was I started looking at like, what are we trying to defend with network defense? Why are we defending yeah. a network? Nobody cares about a network as much as they care about data. Like why do attackers attack? They want data intellectual property, customer data, financial data, whatever it is. And when you think about defending data as opposed to defending kind of a nebulous network, you know, concept, I think it really shifted my focus away from it. And then finally, to your point about application layer security, when the problems are like authentication and authorization related, this all looks like normal network traffic. Yes. And so what are you going to do from a network defense perspective? You know, very, very little. So anyway, yeah, just as I said, preaching to the choir on that front. Well, we've only got a few minutes left and I've still got two or three topics that I want to get to. So we're going to have to go kind of rapid fire okay. in some of this. You mentioned that you go through the same kind of security awareness training. You still put CEOs through the same kind of security awareness training. I know that you do work with CyberEyes and also with Salt Cybersecurity. Talk to us a little bit about some of the day-to-day -day work that you're doing and helping customers and why we are seeing this huge rise in kind of the virtual CISO and managed cybersecurity. Yeah. So, yeah, I actually, so I was at SALT and I was there, yeah, their chief CISO and the CISO. And fractional CISOs, I think, are becoming more and more of a reality because now, no matter how small a company is, they realize that they need at least some cybersecurity guidance, not necessarily a full-time person, but somebody that goes through and help them understand what their program should look like, create a program for them and help them to actually get that program implemented. A lot of smaller companies have found out that, back to our old friend SOC, have found out that they won't get certain customers unless they have a SOC 2. 
So if you're a financial services company, you probably won't do business with a vendor no matter how small they are unless they have a SOC 2, for example. Yep. So because of that, and then some other companies I worked with, an investor said that they should have some cyber, so they went down the SOC 2 path. So a lot of it is really around making sure that you do that really core basic blocking and tackling with these companies that, again, they may not have somebody full-time. A lot of times they've got a uh, managed network company that they work with. They may not have a managed security provider, but they work with a managed network company that may have security as part of their offering. So it's really sitting down, doing an assessment, uh, policies, policies, policies. I mean, for anybody, I know people are like, yeah, I hate compliance, but if it's not written down, it's in there. You know, so you need your policy. And then ensuring that you work with whoever is delivering their network operations, you know, their day-to-day ops, ensuring that they understand what the security programs needs to look like and that they're able to implement it at the manner that's going to be the right fit for that company because every company, security is very personal, as you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I've wondered about, do you think, do you see that, um, I've had a few hypotheses around why so much increase in managed security and why things like MDR are just taking off like wildfire right now. And I've wondered, I'd love to get your perspective as somebody with experience in this space. I've wondered if A, more companies are targets now, right? For two reasons. One is that companies have transformed over the last couple of years in the pandemic and they've gone much more digital than they might've been previously. You know, take anybody from your local restaurant that may not have taken orders online before, but guess what? Now they do whether directly or via some third-party menu system or something like that or Grubhub or whatever, right? So there's one, more digital data, more targets. Two, more automated attacking means that you don't have to choose targets very carefully anymore. You can kind of just like set your pen testing tool against an IP block, a very large IP block, and press go and sit back and watch who shows up as vulnerable. And then three, I think about, you know, these companies that are now getting to that point where they're like, big enough and digital enough to be targets, but they're small enough that they don't have the skills in-house. And I'm curious, like, do you think it's all of those factors, maybe equally, or which ones do you think are kind of the biggest culprits or the biggest factors behind the rise of managed security? I think you're absolutely right that everybody, you know, digital transformation, right, the buzzword, right, but basically most companies being in the cloud, which is is what, you know, either, and a lot of companies now just being born, you know, they're cloud native when they start. Yeah. Then that just made everybody was basically out there in a target. I've got a doggy daycare and I'm, my, I'm not on the net or I'm just on the net simply to do backup. That's very different from if I have my whole booking is available. You can see the cameras with the dogs, right? There's a whole lot of stuff that comes online at a small company out around the internet. We saw this in sort of a big way with OT, right? Once Shodan came out, the OT side was like, oh, well, gosh, you can change the temperature on my nuclear core. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize we thought we were all shut down and closed up because we have remote admin and it wasn't protected. Yeah. Um, yeah. So true story about that, that during these. Um, anyway, uh, so so I, I do think that it's just being on the net, but then you can't discount the fact that now you can go, you can buy ransomware as a service, you can buy attack as a service. So it is so easy to just, spray out, you know, and, and there's a lot of, of phishing and ransomware. It's just really that spray and pray. It's like you do it to everybody. Somebody answers and says, okay, and you make enough money back. Then there's the very targeted, you know, the, the very, this, the laser phishing, the very targeted back that goes on. And that's sort of a whole different, the human operated ransomware versus the automated ransomware. 
but so that that the ease of having those out is is absolutely a huge piece and then i think there is also that other piece of just companies saying i want to have this partner i want to be you know protected in advance companies know that they need to do it but security expertise is not cheap so they don't need it full time and that's where yeah. i think that fractional and i actually worked with the state of new hampshire here on there was a grant to the state of new hampshire to help the very small businesses and by very small businesses i mean you know 10 people we have we in their micro businesses one person yeah. two what about that yeah. <laughs> i've been able to get uh, you know, even a fractional CISO is a lot for them, but we have to help everybody. So it's it's sort of also thinking about everybody needs to be aware. Everyone's a target now because a one person company is a target for you know the yeah. the automated ransomware as a service. So yeah, it's it's I think also it behooves us in security to see how we can tear out the support so that the micro businesses all the way to the huge businesses have at least some security guidance and advice to help them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I. I agree with you on that 100%. We've got two more quick things I want to get to. So one, we talked a little bit at the beginning about some of your work with these nonprofit organizations or kind of industry organizations like WESIS. You know, as somebody who's been in the cybersecurity space for a long time, I've seen this, I'm sure you've seen it as well. We are not a super diverse collection of people historically. I do think there's some positive change happening over there. But what can you share with us in regards to like helping organizations think about bringing in more diversity in their applicant pools, in their staffing? What should we be doing as an industry to be more inclusive? Yeah. So I, I think that the inc inclusive is the right thing. Is is That's the perfect word because it's not just about hiring people, a diverse team. It's about ensuring that that team is included and heard so that it stays a diverse team because some companies have gotten really pretty good about hiring diversity, but then they don't keep that at the company because mm. they, they leave because they're not. And most of the time people leave a company, they say you don't leave a company, you leave managers. But right. really some of the biggest indicators of why people leave are they feel that there's no opportunity for advancement. Doesn't mean everybody's looking to double their salary in a year or something, but just any path, any chance, can I do something else or am I going to be stuck? Especially when you're talking like SOC analysts, for example. Yeah. You know, that's a hard job. That's and it is. And, and most of the people who are doing that some people love it. They want to live there forever. A lot of people love it, get need that experience, but then want to know what's my next step. So giving people path for advancement, respecting them. Managers can really help here. If you've got people that take over a, a call and you've got other people that are not being heard that, and they don't speak up, they're not being included. And it may be, and just saying you have to speak up now, that may not be right for them. So you kind of have to meet people where they are because the way some people feel comfortable expressing themselves is not in public venues, right? So you as a manager may need to talk to them, but they need to know that they're heard, whether that's in that meeting yeah. or so that inclusion, making sure everybody feels included and inclusion is really about respect and listening to them. The other really big note is if you're not getting enough diverse candidates in your pipeline, rethink how you're writing the job descriptions. We have a huge problem in this industry where we write these job descriptions that are like these, you know, like ornate kitchen sinks where you sort of want absolutely everything. You want this like unicorn. I've asked some managers when I've looked at, you know, when I encounter them, they're like, I'm not getting anybody right. And I'm not getting any diverse candidates. Like, well, can I read your job description? And you read it and it's like, I don't think anybody exists that can do all this. They're like, well, yeah. you know, we, it's, we want somebody who's about 60 to 70%. So we over, and I'm like, Oh no, that's a really good way not to get 
a diverse candidate pool because not to over gender this, because I know that when you when you talk about gender research that, you know, there are generalizations that go off, but yeah. research indicates that in general, women will not respond to a job description unless they have 90% or above of what's in that, that job description. Yeah. In general, again, I get that, you know, there's always exceptions, but in general, sure. men will, it's around the 60% mark. So if you are a manager who wrote this ornate carousel, could you you know, a job description at a hundred percent, figuring you'll get sixty. You've almost guaranteed that you're not going to get women who are applying for that job. So go back, look at your job description. Even something as simple, and I still see it now. You know, he is going to do this. He is going to do that. He's well. How do we know it's the he? <laughs> right. Know? Right. Yeah, that's such a good point. That I just wonder. I mean, that's something that can be easily addressed in things like job descriptions, right? And you can. You know, most job descriptions that I've seen even go so far as to have kind of a required skills and then desired qualifications. And you can even just move things from required to desired to make it clear. And to your point, absolutely, you know, there are even right now we're hiring for some software developers and we actually do separate like what we absolutely like must have. I really think, you know, what what must be in there. But to your point, I think that is something that we as an industry can really think about and do a better job with. So that's a great point. I thank you for bringing that up. One last thing to kind of close things out for today. I know you've written a couple books over the years. We were talking a little bit before we started recording about one of your books. I take it is getting a second edition, right? Yes. Practical Cybersecurity Architecture. I co-wrote it with Ed Moyle and we are currently in the middle of second edition revision. What is that book about? I mean, just give our audience a little teaser, like what can they expect to learn from that book? It was designed for people who are either practicing technical architects, but want to understand how they would be cybersecurity architects. So it gives you a good background of what those, I mean, it's it's nuanced, it's different. Architecture is, sure. is, is right, but you know, what you have to bring into the thought, which is about threat modeling and risk analysis when you bring cyber into the mix. It's also for people that may not know anything about architecture. We wanted them to be able to pick up this book and get a feel for, okay, this is what architecture means, and then how do I make sure that that architecture is secure? And it was written for a very broad audience in that it is for both application and network architecture, some people have said, but they're totally different. We get that. They are very different. I'm a network tech. Yeah, born and and bred network architect. My co-author, Ed Moyle, born and bred application architect. So we, so having both of us on this book, I think really helped to bring those together. But I've also heard people that they skip, if they really only care about one kind of architecture versus the other, they kind of skip the parts that they don't need and read on. But it was written for, so if, I think that's why I was picked up as a textbook too. And we very specifically brought it to basics and approaches rather than specifics. So the specific, so it's pointless now, um, but it's, it's not going to tell you go into AWS and turn the widget this way or go into Azure right. and turn the right. widget that way because that would have been out of date by the time it was published. So this is really about yeah. those core yeah. basic building blocks so that when you go and start to understand AWS security architecture, you understand the delta of what they're saying between what you know is going to be very small because you'll have this very nice, strong foundation about basic cyber architecture and then get that delta up to make sure that you're an Amazon cyber architect or a Microsoft cyber architect or Google. Sounds like a I don't great... need to leave out Google. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we can't forget that. 
But it sounds like a great book. And I really love that you've got kind of both perspectives in their network and application. I think that's so relevant for the modern world that we live in, where, you know, where is your layer three? Where is your layer four? I mean, yeah. everything's changing with the shift to the cloud. So that's awesome. I really, really like your point about fundamentals there. And, you know, learning the fundamental concepts is so important. It's so funny. I think back to my own training and I went through all these different things that I, as I was kind of getting started in my career, one of the most fundamental things as a early network engineer was just understanding the layer seven stack. As it turns out, TCP IP hasn't really evolved all that much over 20 right. years. Right. But still the fundamentals about, you know, like data link and transport layer and all those things yeah. are core concepts that have stuck with me through the years. And they've really been instrumental in kind of looking at everything. And one of the things that I actually really think you get out of learning in a fundamentals approach is a troubleshooting mindset where you think through like what fundamental might have gone wrong here when I'm looking at a breach or I'm looking at a lack of connectivity or whatever. So I think that's awesome. Now, were you saying you can give away a copy to one of our listeners? Absolutely. Yeah, we're happy to. Ed and I will we'll sign it and, and ship it out. Well, that is fantastic. So when we get this episode posted, we will post on LinkedIn, we will share, and we'll look for a great comment or something. And we'll let you, the authors, kind of judge what is the the most deserving or the most interesting or compelling comment or conversation that gets sparked as a result of this. Diana Kelly, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on today's show. We went a little bit longer than usual. I hope our audience will stick with us through the end of this, especially knowing that the giveaway is right at the very tail end of it. Thanks so much for taking the time, Diana. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you so much, Jerry. All right. That's signing off for this episode of the Ask a CISO podcast. Join us next time. Bye-bye.